getting into the book of Daniel. So let's get to it. Why don't you grab your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter one for tonight's study. There's something rewarding about tackling the book of Ezekiel and then diving into Daniel. I don't know. Uh, you know, Ezekiel's kind of a mystic. He was uh, seeing wheels within wheels and cherubims flying around and thrones and uh, kabod leaving, coming and going. It was, it's a little dizzying. But the book of Daniel, oh, I love it because it's so practical um, in so many ways, but it's so prophetic in others. Um, it's a story about an amazing guy, but it's also an apologetic work in the sense that Daniel's one of the, the reasons why I think we can defend that the Bible is authentic, uh, that it is, in fact, God's word. Um, some people say you can't prove if the Bible's true or false, uh, but that's, that's not true. Uh, Daniel's one of those books uh, that we see the fingerprints of God on this book that we hold in our hands. And we'll look at that as we get into this book. Um, so it defends the Bible um, in, in, just by reading the Bible and seeing what the Bible does uh, with history and with the future and prophecy. It's just really profound. We're gonna see Daniel not only in the lion's den, but we're gonna talk about Daniel in the critic's den. Maybe the critic's den is more brutal than the lion's den. Um, there's a lot of people who have over the years said, you know what, we're going to um, fight against this book of Daniel. Daniel is sort of a bullseye for the critics, for the skeptics, for the cynics. Um, and there's a reason why um, people that are anti-Bible or anti-God um, atheists, uh, they usually use Daniel as sort of the place to start bashing away at the Bible. Um, and I love this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, show you some of the things that we can do to show that Daniel is an inspired book from God, but we're also gonna show you sort of an end around. You can go for the real scholarly, cerebral defense of Daniel, and we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll just touch on some of that stuff, but I'm gonna save you hours and hours of time. There's an end around reason why we know this book of Daniel is, uh, in fact, inspired, and Daniel was a prophet during the time that he claimed to be a prophet, um, and we're gonna see uh, the, the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is, is so cool because it, it strengthens the believer, but it stupefies the cynic. Uh, that's why the cynics, the critics, don't like the book of Daniel is because they cannot answer certain things that really reveal God's amazing provision in the book of Daniel. And there's no denying of it. Uh, they try, and they shoot, try to shoot at the book of Daniel all the time, and they have for centuries. But tonight, we're gonna see even some of those things. But um, we did the introduction to Daniel on Sunday, that is the person. But uh, we'll start a little bit tonight with the introduction and get into chapter one, the introduction to the book of Daniel. Um, and, um, and so we kind of start with that, that question, is the Bible provable? And the answer is yes. Um, we'll, we'll see that the book of Daniel uh, has its origin from outside our time domain, the archeological discoveries that, uh, that validate the book of Daniel. We'll talk about a few of those kinds of things. So Dan, Daniel strengthens a believer, but stupefies the critic. How is it that the book of Daniel does that? Well, as it turns out, one of the things about Daniel that's so cool is uh, he receives visions and prophecies from the Lord, um, even with other people receiving visions and dreams, like Nebuchadnezzar, dreaming about the future of the world. And this dreaming and vision would be profound in that it would 
really foretell the beginning uh, to the end of the world. Um, and really Daniel's gonna talk about kingdoms that will come and go, and he'll talk about them with great specificity. He'll, he'll, he'll define who's coming after the Babylonians. He'll show us the Medes and the Persians who in Daniel's time hadn't even come yet. And then the Greeks led by Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great's gonna be even not by name mentioned, but mentioned as a, a world conqueror uh, from the Greeks. Um, and we're gonna see um, you know, uh, uh, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, um, you know, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, for you older folks. And it's not a rapper that we're talking about here for you younger people. Um, we're actually talking about, or, or I guess Mark Anthony's not a rapper, but um, I don't know what he is. Uh, but anyway, all that to say, uh, we're talking about ancient people here. And the Bible predicts all of these, uh, these dudes um, and people. Uh, and, and Daniel 11 is gonna be full of amazing prophecies. Some people read Daniel 11 and think, wow, it's kind of boring. Because um, it's about stuff that's a little dizzying. But when you realize the profundity of the prophecy itself. It's, it's really cool. And we'll, we'll uh, show some of that stuff out. But because Daniel is, is like the Bible, God says, God knows the beginning from the end. God knows the future. Um, and you have to be careful, by the way, there's a movement in the church somewhat uh, by some people that are saying that God doesn't know the future. It's all unwritten. And there's kind of a new theology out there to watch out for that. Uh, promoted by guys like Greg Boyd and others. Be careful about that. Uh, I think that's really ridiculous uh, uh, ideas that God doesn't know the future. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that churches and Christians are um, sort of saying, well, God doesn't know the future. Why would they come to that conclusion? Because pastors and churches are neglecting Bible prophecy altogether. They won't even read the, the second half of the book of Daniel at least, or uh, get into the book of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or some of these other words of prophecy. Um, and so it's no wonder the church is saying, well, God doesn't really know the future. It's, it's, it's really out of uh, being ill-informed and not really studying that, wow, God knows the beginning from the end and he explains it, the whole thing, uh, in great detail. Daniel might just be one of the more detailed descriptions of future events. And it's for that reason, the fact that Daniel the prophet in this little book of 12 chapters, he's gonna outline the whole course of the world and, um, and uh, this is why the critics are stupefied. So what do they do? What, what, what's the number one tool for a cynic or a skeptic of the Bible? What's the number one tool that says, we gotta discredit the book of Daniel? By the way, I mentioned last Sunday that in my college classes at um, literature at class uh, at uh, Southern Oregon University, um, the professor of that, that class tried to discredit the book of Daniel. And, uh, and it's always amazing to me, these people that come and go, but Daniel still remains. The book is still as solid as a rock. I feel like some of these cynics and skeptics that come and go, they're pushing against a boulder with a toothpick. Like, good luck with that. Uh, Daniel remains, they're all dead and gone, uh, the cynics and critics. And there's always new ones that come up. But one of the biggest things they attempt to ch change is the date of the writing of the book and the authorship of the book. They say that Daniel was a forgery. It was somebody who claimed to be Daniel, but wrote it many, many years later because they know that nobody would have known all the detail that Daniel knew. So it must have been written, you know, late. Now, to make that argument, you have to put it at least somewhere around 50 AD. 
Uh, the author, if you're, if you're gonna be one of those guys that say the book of Daniel's a forgery and written much later, uh, um, there's an old ancient guy who was the first guy who really made this argument, a dude by the name of Porphyry, you can look him up. But Porphyry was one of the chief arguers of Daniel's a forgery and he said it had to have been written in 50 AD, 50 years you know, um, uh, in, into the New Testament period, if you would. Um, and the reason they, they say it has to be that is because there's such detail on things like, for example, in, um, in Daniel chapter 11, the, the uh, battle between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, remember Antiochus Epiphanes, and um, you know the Jews celebrate uh, Hanukkah, which was the festival of lights that was sort of the result of the Maccabean revolt and uh, the Maccabees. And, and all that is totally predicted in the book of Daniel. So Porphyry and others say, you see, this had to have been written later. And so it's just some dude claiming to be Daniel. Um, now, before I get into the defense of why that's ridiculous, uh, and, and, and by the way, I love this because you don't even have to be really a scholar to defend this. Uh, let, let me explain. Um, we have ancient texts of the Bible. Um, you, you should know the Masoretic text, uh, often in scholarly works uh, referred to as the MT, Masoretic text. Um, um, it, it, it was not used in, in the, uh, you know, book of Daniel. Uh, you know, that was derived from the Council of Yamnia, by the way, the Masoretic text, and came like a thousand years after the source of, uh, that we the earliest source of Daniel that we have. And that comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Septuagint. Septuagint meaning 70. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was, was put together over a 15-year period by 72 different scholars. Uh, and these scholars were uh, Greek scholars. Some have argued it might have been the best uh, group of scholars uh, of the Greek language ever assembled in the history of the world, the ones that put together the Greek Septuagint, 285 to 270 B.C., that's when the, um, they're in Alexandria, that's when the Septuagint was put together. So the reason that's so cool is the Septuagint um, was the, the, the work that was primarily quoted in the New Testament. When Jesus quotes from the, New, from the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, he doesn't quote from the Masoretic text. Uh, that came way later. He quotes from the Greek Septuagint. That's what Jesus was reading in those days. Um, that's what Paul quotes from. Paul quotes directly from the Greek Septuagint written uh, 285 to 270 BC. Um, and, um, and it wasn't, some people try to make it like it was the Masoretic text, it wasn't. Now, the reason that's important, if you just do the math very quickly, remember Porphyry and the critics say that it had to have been AD 50. But it's, it's not even up for debate of when the Septuagint first appeared. And that was, I mean, that's just, everybody knows, 270 BC is when the Septuagint came onto the scene. So guess what book's in the Greek Septuagint? The book of Daniel. It's such a ridiculous argument. Like maybe you could pull the wool over some high school kid's eyes and say, yeah, the book of Daniel was a forgery and, uh, and it was written 50 AD. But uh, it, it really, you don't have to even be halfway scholarly to know that the Septuagint was written in 270 BC, which is really cool for us because so much of Daniel's prophecies happened after 270. Uh, for example, the Ptolemy Solutions, Alexander uh, the Great, uh, or not Alexander the Great, but the, um, the, the um, you know, that Antiochus Epiphanes who came into Jerusalem. All those things were predicted by Daniel in great detail and that's why the scholars freak out. 
We can't stand it that Daniel says that, so it has to be a forgery, but they can't make that argument. By the way, not only is that a good argument because it gets you at least to 270, we also have a good argument that gets you back to 332 uh, BC. And that is when Alexander the Great uh, came uh, for the conquest of Jerusalem. Now Josephus, if you know Josephus was that first century historian, um, wrote about this story of Alexander the Great besieging Jerusalem and how a, a certain priest named Jadua, who showed him references, showed Alexander the Great references to himself, to Alexander the Great in the book of Daniel. And because of that, the city of Jerusalem was spared by Alexander the Great because of his seeing himself in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament book of Daniel. Um, there's so many other reasons why we can argue uh, that, that Daniel was written by Daniel uh, back, you know, uh, you know, in 530-ish uh, BC. How do we know Daniel wrote this? Well, um, you know, one, one really cool thing that happened uh, in the past century was a German archeologist named Robert Coldaway. Um, he did some amazing digs. He lived from 1855 to 1925, this archeological dig. Uh, he did excavations of Nebuchadnezzar's palace, which was the very place where Belshazzar had the party and the handwriting on the wall. Um, archaeological digs found that very palace where that happened. Um, also, he found the hanging gardens. Um, the ancient wonder of the ancient worlds uh, is, is the hanging gardens of Babylon. Before, you know, Coldaway found the hanging gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon was just a legend. Uh, it's not even in the Bible, but it was a legend uh, about how beautiful Babylon was. And they talked about these ancient hanging gardens and people said, ah, it's just a legend, it's not true. Well, Coldaway was this archeological dig, uh, archeologist that found the literal hanging gardens of Babylon in the digs. And he found the banquet hall, exactly where this party where uh, Belshazzar uh, got the vessels from Jerusalem and party down. That exact place was found and it was measured by the way, uh, Coldaway uh, found it was 173 feet by 56 feet um, in size, this big hall. And, um, and, and here's the cool part. Daniel's description of that story, we'll get to that you know, in a few weeks. It gave some specificity that was really important that Bible critics and skeptics said, there's no way in Babylon there was a hall like this and Daniel's book is just exaggerating. Daniel's doesn't even know, blah, blah, blah. But as it fall, uh, falls out, uh, Coldaway found the hall and it perfectly confirmed everything the book of Daniel said about it. And that's kind of cool. The, the critics were shut down once again. Archeological digs are always shutting down the critics. I love that, um, the skeptics. Uh, the more you dig, the more you find out that the Bible knew what it's talking about. And the conclusion, uh, even the secularists had to say, the conclusion is that Daniel had to be an eyewitness of that account to have the detail of that story with such exact precision as they dug it up in archeological digs. Do you remember when Jesus came down uh, you know, on the little cult of the donkey and the people were crying, Hosanna. And the religious leaders were saying, somebody silence these people. Jesus, silence these people. And Jesus said, if I silence these people, do you remember what he said? Even the rocks will cry out. And guess what? The rocks are crying out archeologically. I love it. You know, uh, all the archeological digs are only confirming the Bible to be valid. 
And there's still things that people say, well, we know that there could never have been this place or that place or that king never existed or whatever. And, and that's the fun part. As a Bible student, just year after year, we have more and more confirmation of uh, the biblical accuracy and what have you. But let's do the end around proof that Daniel was who he claimed to be. Jesus was quoting um, from the Old Testament from the Septuagint, we already said that. But what I love about this is Jesus um, quotes Daniel three times. Um, two of which uh, he, he uh, one is Matthew 24, verse 15, where he talked about, you know, the, 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 abomination, of, uh, the abomination of desolation that happened, that he says the prophet Daniel talked about. Jesus said the prophet Daniel. Uh, Mark, um, you know, also uh, the, the gospel of Mark in Mark 13, 14, Jesus did the same thing. It says this, Jesus said, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which is so cool that Jesus said Daniel the prophet, and I'll tell you why. Because some people try to say, oh, it was just a Daniel that Jesus was quoting, but it was not Daniel the prophet. But Jesus used those exact words. Daniel the prophet said this. So here's where I love the argument to go. And this is always a good way to, if you're, if you're you know, talking to some person who's got their arguments about Daniel being a forgery, I love getting the, the argument back, to, not as much about the book of Daniel, but who do you think Jesus Christ is? Did Jesus know what he was talking about or didn't he? Because that's the real issue. Um, uh, so, so like in my college class, it was really an awkward moment when I, sa I said, you know, you believe Daniel was a forgery and it wasn't really Daniel the prophet. And he said, that's right. Then I said, so do you believe you know more about who Daniel was than Jesus Christ? Because Jesus said it was Daniel three times. So you're saying you know more about the book of Daniel than Jesus the Messiah? And, and it's an awkward moment for the professor. Yes, I know more than Jesus. Like once they say that, a lot of students are like, uh, wait a minute, uh, this may be a little, you know, like some dude from Ashland, Southern Oregon University knows more than Jesus. Okay. That's getting down to the real issue, if you ask me. Uh, who do you say that I am? That's, that's what Jesus gets to. So, so all this to say, you'll, you'll still hear the critics try to knock down the book of Daniel because how profoundly exacting it is with its prophecy but we've got um, ample defense. Um, the, the skeptics are still kind of going out of their minds trying to figure out how to take down the book of Daniel and they haven't been able to for centuries. I love that. Um, other observations about the book we're about to look at. Daniel, um, Daniel the prophet was quoted three times in the book of Ezekiel and we talked about that. If you wanted to remember, it's Ezekiel 14, 14, um, uh, Ezekiel chapter 20, and also Ezekiel 28, verse three. Um, these are places where Ezekiel quoted Daniel. Say, well, so what, whatever. But what's interesting, remember, Daniel and Ezekiel were contemporaries. It's like uh, the prophet Daniel was being quoted by other prophets before Daniel was even dead. He was a legend in his own time. He was being quoted. And, and by the way, Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 14 classified Daniel right up there with Noah and Job um, you have to understand the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew, the Jews, Noah and Job were some of the heavy hitters. But Ezekiel compares Daniel to those ancient heroes of the Hebrews. Only Daniel's still alive when Ezekiel uh, says that. Uh, nothing evil is spoken of Daniel in the book of Daniel. That's amazing. And no record of sin like we mentioned on uh, Sunday. 
Also, Daniel's book is unique in some ways because it's, um, it's written both uh, in two languages. Um, part of it is in Hebrew, part of it's in Aramaic, and we'll, we'll split that up in a second. Um, but but uh, what's even more interesting is there's actually uh, several other foreign words that aren't part of Hebrew or Aramaic. There are, thir- uh, pardon me, 15 Persian words that are used, which um, to me only validates part of the book of Daniel, because if you remember, the Medes and the Persians took over uh, while Daniel was in captivity, and he, he knew the Persians. He talked to the Persians. So he employs 15 Persian words and three Greek words. Now, some people say, see, Daniel used three Greek words. This is why it's a forgery. Um, the Greek language wasn't in use at the time when Daniel uh, you know, used these Greek words. Here's the funniest part about that. Um, the Greek language at that time was not the lingua franca uh, at the time, but it was totally around during the time of Daniel. Um, and don't let anybody bamboozle you with, because Daniel used three Greek words in the, uh, the text of the ancient book of Daniel, uh, don't let that bother you. Some, some people try to make a big deal out of that. It's not a big deal at all. Are you guys with me on this? This is just some of the defense of the book of Daniel. And I, I like to give you a little bit of those tools because uh, the, the book is so powerful that the, the, the critics wanna try to take it down and they've done a, a really poor job of that. Uh, and they will, they'll continue to fail on that one. Um, the organization of the book is, is pretty simple. The first six chapters are the historical narrative. Um, the, the, the last six chapters, seven through 12, are the visions uh, that Daniel receives. Uh, chapter four, interestingly enough, was written by a Gentile king. Like maybe one of the most powerful kings that ever lived on the earth wrote one of the chapters in the Bible. That's kind of an interesting thing. And Daniel sticks it in his book. Uh, and we'll look at that chapter written by a Gentile king. That's kind of fun. Um, chapters eight through 12, generally speaking, focuses on Israel and the Jews, and it's written in Hebrew. Uh, chapters two through seven, generally speaking, I should say this, I'll tell you why I'm saying generally speaking, is written in Aramaic. Um, the, the ling- that would be the lingua franca of the time, the, 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 the Aramaic. And by the way, Aramaic was the language Jesus spoke. Uh, so um, it had to do with the Jews and their captivity for 70 years. And when they came back to Jerusalem, the Aramaic language stuck and, and traveled with them and it became sort of the language of the time. But if you wanna break it down more precisely, if you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Uh, the Hebrew scriptures, it stops, it, it starts in chapter one, Hebrew, and it goes all the way from chapter one to chapter two, verse four, the first half of the verse. Um, it stops speaking Hebrew in the middle of verse four of chapter two. So Hebrew one uh, and, and chapter two, all the way to verse four, A, I'll call it, that's Hebrew. And then from 2, 4, B, chapter 2, verse 4, the second part of that verse, uh, all the way to chapter 7, uh, verse 28, um, that's the Aramaic section, um, which is kind of cool. Um, but chapters, uh, you know, 8 and 12 through 12 is also back to Hebrew. So it, it is kind of interesting how Daniel kind of weaves in and out of Hebrew and Aramaic. The Hebrew was the language, by the way, of the covenant with God's people. Uh, the Aramaic was the language of the Gentile world. Um, so it's kind of interesting how Daniel uses those two. Um, the Hebrew language, by the way, was generally lost for a long, long time. 
Um, but one of the prophecies about the end times that Ezekiel gave us, if you recall, is there'd be a restoration of the use of the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language never disappeared. It just was not in use for a long time on the globe. Nobody was speaking Hebrew. It was sort of an academic language, like, like you know, the, in the same way the Catholics use the Latin. Uh, didn't you guys ra raise in a Catholic church where you heard Latin sermons? And you're like, what are they saying? It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't know Latin. Uh, well, that's the way the Hebrews were about their Hebrew. It was just a academic language until uh, the, the last, you know, 100 years or so, a couple hundred years, I should say, um, a guy by the name of Ben Yehuda uh, declared, we will now bring Hebrew back uh, little did he know he was fulfilling Ezekiel's prophecy that in the last days, the Hebrew language would be restored. If you go to Israel today, everybody's speaking Hebrew, um, which is again, a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This stuff is exciting. I can't believe churches are missing out on all the fun. Like this is the fun part of the Bible, if you ask me, all this stuff that we see happening around the world. It's just really cool to see how the, the Lord knows the beginning from the end. So, um, so there it is, that's kind of the introduction of this book. Um, just a few things on dates and stuff that you might wanna be interested in. Um, you remember that Daniel was taken in the first wave of the Nebuchadnezzar's besieging. He besieged the city in, what was it, 605, and some argue that he actually took them in 607. Uh, there was a besieging in 605, the, the taking of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, remember, it was the first wave, it was the most... Um, how should I say this? The, the least violent phase of, of the taking of the people. Uh, phase one was, was uh, there was, there was a sort of a taking of the city and the Jews surrendering early. Now they did this, by the way. Why did the Jews surrender so quickly, so early um, here uh, in the first wave? It has to do with Jeremiah the prophet, and I'll show you that here in a second. Uh, the second wave, they didn't surrender quite as much. The third wave... Um, that's when Jerusalem was completely crushed in 586 uh, BC. So um, all that to say, that, you know, this is kind of that first conquest of the Babylonians in Jerusalem. And we read that uh, right here in verse one. Let's start. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into Jerusalem or unto Jerusalem and besieged it. So that's what he did in 605. He besieged Jerusalem. Now, let's, let's just remember the condition of Jerusalem at this time. This, this moment, this is when Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem prophesying about the coming doom of the Babylonians. And Jeremiah would prophesy right through the first wave, the second wave, and even the third wave. Jeremiah was there the whole time. Um, but this first wave, Jeremiah, do you remember where Jeremiah tried to warn this king Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim uh, he tried to warn him. And it, it's kind of an interesting story, if you recall. In fact, why don't you flip back, if you would, if you want to, Jeremiah chapter two. Um, um, it's interesting because if you remember in Jeremiah chapter two, there was this kind of... Um, Oh, I should say not Jeremiah 2. How about Jeremiah 36? <laughs> I don't know why I said 2. Have you ever been turning in your Bible? Of course, if you've ever been in front of people and you're turning people in your Bible and all of a sudden panic. Wait a minute, that's not it. Uh, no, Jeremiah 36 is where it says uh, there in verse 
uh, 1, Jeremiah 36, 1, and it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Remember, Josiah was a good king who was killed in battle. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spake unto thee, even to the days of Josiah to this day. Well, Jeremiah does that with the help of a, a scribe named Baruch. So Jeremiah and Baruch take a scroll and start writing. And they're writing the book of Jeremiah. Well, they take the scroll and they bring it, verse 11 of the same chapter, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard the, out of the book all the words of the Lord, then he went down to the king's house. So, so now they take the scroll down to the king's house and say, man, the king's gotta hear this. What did Jeremiah write? Well, the king now, Josiah was uh, replaced with Jehoiakim. So the king gets the scroll of Jeremiah and we see him, uh, they read it. Look at verse 21. So the king sent Jehudi, who? Jehudi, uh, to fetch the roll. And he, uh, and he took it out of Elishama, uh, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and uh, the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. So how did the king respond? And, and before we read this, how do you respond uh, to the reading of the word or the hearing of the word? It's always a good thing to check your heart um, when you hear the word of God, um, man, to, to check your heart because check out Jehoiakim's heart. Verse 22, now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. Sounds cozy. And verse 23, and it came to pass that when Jehudi read uh, uh, three or four leaves, he cut it up with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. What happened, Jehoiakim, here's you know, a few uh, sections of the scroll of Jeremiah and uh, Jehoiakim says, yeah, whatever, and takes out a little knife and chops it up into pieces and throws it into the fire. That's what people are doing to the word of God today. People are chopping up the word, saying, I don't like that part, whoosh, ripping pages out and throw it in the fire. Um, there's all kinds of topics where, where people, you know, whether they're secularists or even Christians, sad to say, um, I don't like what it says about the LGBTQ uh, issues. Whoosh, throw those in the fire. I don't like what it says about women being pastors in the church. Whoosh, that's not popular today. Whoosh, throw it in the fire. Um, I don't like what it has to say about, you know, and, and on and on the list goes. Like I can go on and on with, with things that we, we're throwing out today because we just don't like it. That's what Jehoiakim did. Where did that get Jehoiakim? Babylon. Jehoiakim gets, uh, gets taken. He didn't read the book. He didn't care what the, the scriptures said and he chopped it up and burned it up. And so he ends up messed up. Uh, and we, we see this king now and the result of that in Daniel chapter one. Let's go back to Jan, Daniel one. This is the same guy that's mentioned at the start of the book of Daniel. The same guy that chopped up the Bible of Jeremiah, if you would, he ends up here now in captivity uh, under the um, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian rule. And that's what happened in 605. Well, verse two, it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. So um, 
You know, here it is. When a person like Jehoiakim disregards the Bible, what does it cause the world to do? Well, we see two things. Um, we see, you know, the, the, the blasphemy uh, of God. Um, and, you know, right here, we see the, uh, the result of Jehoiakim's sin uh, leads to blasphemy. It says um, he carried these vessels, <clears throat> excuse me, into the, the house of, of, of his God in Shinar. Um, what, what is Shinar, by the way? Shinar is another name for Babylon, or maybe better said, Babylonia. Um, it's sort of like Shinar is the greater area or Babylonia is the greater area, depending on what, who you're reading and what texts you're reading or period of time. But Babylonia or the greater part of, uh, you know, the, of Mesopotamia, that part that's near and around Babylon, they call that Shinar uh, uh, eight times in the Bible. It's called Shinar. Uh, so just know that it's the greater. Babylon's the city. Babylonia is sort of Shinar. Shinar is another name for the greater area. It's like Washington County uh, versus uh, Tualatin or whatever. Is Tualatin in Washington County? Yeah, I think so. Um, but all that to say, uh, it's a greater group area. And so that's what's being said here. So what, it, what happens? The vessels of God, the holy vessels that were used to worship in the temple in Jerusalem are now being defiled in the temple of the uh, Babylonian God. Um, that's what happens when we sin, when we disregard the Bible, we see his name blasphemed. You know, sin always leads to that. Um, and, uh, and also it, sin always leads to um, bondage. Now Jehoiakim's in bondage. Sin always leads to bondage. You always get nailed by sin. And Jehoiakim thought he was getting away with it, but he ends up getting in bondage and the name of God is being uh, blasphemed there. By the way, um, it reminds me of what Paul warned about in Romans chapter two, verse 22, it says, um, thou that say, uh, sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest your boast in the law, though breaking the, the law, dishonorest God, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. When the church or when Christians or believers of the Old Testament are sinning, what happens is the name of God is then blasphemed in, amidst the, the, the unbelievers. And it's so sad to see when the church of Jesus Christ has its sin uh, when we are engaged in sin, and then the name of God is blasphemed. Um, so what's the solution, Brett? Easy, we shouldn't be sinning. Well, that sounds legalistic, Brett. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that the Bible teaches that we shouldn't sin. It's almost like somewhere along the way, there's people like, yeah, that's why I sin a little bit, whatever. Don't sin, that's what the Bible teaches. I know that that sounds almost like impossible because we're all sinners, no one's righteous, we've all fallen short. But somewhere along the way, we've sort of lost the drive for holiness. And it's what we talked about Sunday. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And so I, it, wouldn't it be great if, you know, if Athey Creek and, and the church, the greater church of Jesus Christ was called to that, not, not, a, not a got to out of legalism, but a get to out of just being obedient to God's holy and wonderful word, a drive for holiness, you know, uh, just to do the right thing and to make the right decisions and not just embrace sinful stuff. Well, that's what Jehoiakim does. He's, he's just a sinner who keeps sinning and now he ends up in bondage and, the, and in the name of God is blasphemed in the, in the house of, uh, you know, the gods of Shinar there. Well, 
Verse three, and the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Um, verse four, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all, uh, um, pardon me, uh, cunning, skillful in all wisdom and cunning in all knowledge and understanding science. Don't you love it? Uh, Daniel was apparently a guy who understood science. That's why they chose him, one of their things. But he, he was cunning in knowledge, understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's uh, palace and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So this is what we talked about on Sunday. The, the way of the Babylonians was to sort of assimilate the youngest, brightest, best of the, of the captives. And Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of that crew. Um, I don't think it should go unnoticed though that this is a fulfillment of something Isaiah the prophet said. Um, in Isaiah, you can jot this down, Isaiah 39, verse six. Do you remember when Isaiah tried to warn the people and said, behold, the days will come that, in, um, that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up store until this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And listen, the son of thy sons shall issue from thee, which shall be, uh, you shall beget. They shall take away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Isaiah the prophet long foretold um, Daniel chapter one, um, you know, verse three and four. Um, Isaiah the prophet predicted this and now it's happened. The reason I, I like to remind us of that is when God says it, it's gonna happen. And um, anybody who says it's not gonna happen or it's, or it's not just to be taken figuratively, uh, I think we're just poorer for not taking the Bible literally. Um, these guys, I'm sure of that day, oh, we won't be taking captivity of Babylon, whatever. And here they are exactly like uh, Isaiah the prophet foretold. So here we see the young, these young men taken. And verse five, it says, and the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Um, so they're, they're gonna feed him uh, the king's food. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay, so we got these young guys. Um, now what do we know about these guys? Nothing yet except for we know their names. And what do we know about their names? Well, their meanings. If you wanna jot them down, it's kind of fun to jot down the names of, uh, of these boys. Daniel's name means God is judge. Um, God is judge. Hananiah, a little bit debatable on what his name means, but most scholars say that Hananiah's name probably means the Lord is gracious. Um, so Daniel's God is judge. Hananiah's the Lord is gracious. Mishael means none is like God. None is like God. And, uh, and then the last guy, Azariah, it, his name means the Lord is my help. The Lord is my help. So God has judged Daniel. Hananiah is the Lord is gracious. Mishael is none is like God. Azariah is the Lord is my help. Now, what happens with these Jewish boys with good Jewish names that have good, amazing Jewish meaning? And by the way, in Bible times, more than even today, Bible time names mean so much. Um, when people named their children something, 
I don't know, you know, it's the cart or the horse, you know, which one came first? Did the kid become like what he, what he said or how they named him or did they name him, uh, you know, did, which one came first? You know, like for example, Nabal, remember the guy Nabal? Who names their kid Nabal? Because Nabal means fool. Um, the mother of Nabal, okay, I'm gonna name you here, fool, come here, little fool. Like, um, uh, that's what they named Nabal. But as it turns out, Nabal was a fool. If you know the story, he was one of the most foolish men in all the Bible. Did he get that name later? Maybe people just said his name shall be Nabal from here on out, because guess what? He's a fool. Uh, maybe that's what happened. But Bible names do uh, hold heaviness and weightiness to the person. So these, these are good Jewish boys with good godly names. God is judge, the Lord is gracious. No one's like God, the Lord is my help. But the Babylonians wanna get that right out of those boys. They wanna get the, the, uh, the, the, the Lord out of them and make them into Babylonians. So it says here in verse seven, these, these four guys, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar and to Hananiah uh, of Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego, or Abednego. Now, here's the thing. Um, isn't it funny? I, I, I often wonder this from the time I was a kid. Why do we still call Daniel, Daniel, but we call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Like, we kept Daniel's name, but they, they kept their Babylonian names. Why? I'm not sure really why we did that. Um, uh, in some ways, we almost want to go back and name those because uh, back to their original names, you know, do you even know Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? That's their original names. Part of me wants to call them that, but then nobody would know who you're talking about. You, you know more about Rakshak and Benny than, than, than uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from VeggieTales. So, 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 so what are these names? Well, don't confuse Belteshazzar with Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar is the one who uh, you know, pooped his pants, needed pantser, pampers. I'm getting ahead of the story, but that's a different guy. Uh, we're gonna get to that story. It's, it's quite a deal. Belteshazzar, his name is the, that's the one given to Daniel and his name means Bel is prince. Bel is uh, the God, one of the gods of the Babylonians. So they're, they're trying to get the Jewishness out of Daniel and get him into Babylonian thinking, just like they're trying to do to your children today. Do you understand that? I hope you know, oh, it's so painful to see what's happening in colleges, universities, high schools, middle schools, grade schools, how uh, the agenda is feverish right now to drive the Lord out of your kids, to drive good godliness and biblical thinking out of your kids. That's what's happening today with your schools. And, um, and, and, and I'm kind of amazed at how many people are just kind of sitting by going, mm, yeah, that's too bad. Um, you know, I've got to say it, uh, for years, you know, I've, you know, as a, a person who graduated with an elementary ed degree, I, I, was, I was wanting to be a school teacher and a principal uh, someday of a school. Uh, that, and that would be my daytime job if I were a pastor. I thought that'd be a complimentary. I'll be a school teacher and a pastor or whatever, you know, tent making skill. So when I got to that, I uh, got that degree and stuff, um, it was kind of interesting because, um, you know, um, I have a heart for education. And, and, and even when my kids were little, Debbie and I prayed about each year, each class, Lord, do you want us to have our kids in public school? Um, 
But um, man, I'm telling you, you know, we did it most of the time. We homeschooled on some, some moments, even half days. We homeschooled half day, took them out early because there were certain classes that were wacko. And we were, we were watching every teacher, every class, all the curriculum because we didn't want them to try to pull a fast one and teach something wacko to our kids. So thankfully I had a wife who spent great time, more time than your average homeschool mom, my wife spent at the school knowing exactly what they were teaching our kids. It takes work. If your kids are in public school, mom, dad, you've got some serious work out of you. Don't just mindlessly send your kids to school. That's, that's a word, I can't say that strong enough. Now, um, some, some people say, well, Brett, you should have just homeschooled. Well, part of it was I wanted my kids to be able to be in this world, but not of this world. Salt and light, and I wanted them to be able to attend public schools. And I, and I still feel that, but man, it's so hostile today. I'm not even sure what I would do now. Um, I'm pretty sure I probably wouldn't send them to public school, honestly, if you're just asking me. What you need to do is pray and say, Lord, what would you, homeschool, public school, private school. No matter which one of those you do, you still have a ton of work to do, mom, dad, you really do. Uh, watch out, this world is ferociously and sadly, victoriously wooing our children and our kids and our young adults um, left and right. Um, some people say, how can you get into such a wacko mindset that our world is in today? The answer, education, which I call brainwashing, um, indoctrination. That's what it has become. So uh, don't be naive, mom and dad. Uh, these days we're living, it's just exactly what they wanted to do with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach. They wanted to get the, the Jewishness out and the worldliness in, and they were gonna cram it down their throats. That's, what, that's what exactly what's happening here in Daniel chapter one. But Daniel says, uh, well, well, we'll get to that in a second, what he says about this, but I love how Daniel's name stuck. He was not gonna be Bel as prince. He's gonna be God as judge. I love that. Um, hopefully our kids will stand firm on that too. But that's what they were trying to do is make good Babylonian kids um, out of these Jewish kids. Um, and, and it starts with just little compromises, by the way. You know, I mean, can you imagine these, these young boys with their parents not in the picture and the, these big tough Babylonians saying, you shall be called Belteshazzar. Like, uh, like who, who stands up against that? Um, Satan wants to compromise you and, and our kids, by the way, but, but all of us, that's Satan's devices. Um, it's, it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, just little compromise here and there, and eventually we're just way off course. I, I, I think one of my, probably my best examples of that is in the book of, of um, Exodus. Remember, remember the compromises of Pharaoh? Pharaoh told Moses, um, yeah, 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 you can, you can get your people out of here. Like Moses is saying, let my people go. But did you know there were several deals that Pharaoh tried to make with Moses? In fact, I'll just quickly, you can jot these down. In Exodus chapter eight, um, verse 25, um, finally, um, you know, after the, uh, the flies, remember the plague of flies? Uh, finally, Pharaoh calls in, you know, Moses and says in, in 825 of, of Exodus, Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron and says, go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land of Egypt. And Moses said, it is not meet to do so. The first compromise Pharaoh tried to say is, okay, yeah, 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 you can go and sacrifice and worship your God, but only stick around here, man, stay in Egypt. Same thing, Egypt's a type of the world. That's exactly what Pharaoh's Satan is trying to say to you and your kids right now. Eh, don't, don't, don't go away from Egypt, stick around in the world. Just be kind of worldly. You can worship your God, go to church on Sunday, but man, just be good you know, uh, Egyptians or good Portlandia people. 
you know? Um, Satan wants to compromise. That was the first one that he tried to make, and Moses said, not gonna happen. The second compromise is in chapter eight, uh, verse 28 of Exodus, where the second compromise goes um, something like this. Let me just read it to you. He says, okay, okay. Um, uh, Pharaoh says, I will let you go that you can sacrifice to it, only don't go very far away. Moses said, we're not gonna stay in the land to worship the Lord. And so the next compromise for us, okay, okay, you can leave, you can leave Egypt, but don't go very far away from Egypt. Uh, do we have a deal? And Moses says, no, that's not a deal. That's what Satan will next do. If he can't keep you in Egypt, he wants to keep you near Egypt, just near the worldliness and godlessness. Just a little more of a compromise, but Moses says, gong, I'm not gonna do that. I love that. Um, and then the, the, the third compromise is in chapter 10, verse 11. This is a crazy one, check this out. Um, and I think Satan's still trying to do this today. Um, in chapter 10, um, uh, verse 10, it says, and, and he says, let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go and your little ones look to it for evil is before you. Not so. Go now that you are, that are men and serve the Lord um, all that you desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now this is King James' way of saying something very confusing when he says, your little one's not so. What is he saying? He's saying, you that are adults can go and leave Egypt forever. Only you gotta leave your kids behind. <laughs> like who's gonna do that? Uh, as it turns out, a lot of us. You see, that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to have you know, us leave our kids behind. Oh, you know, at least I got my walk and I'm doing okay. We'll just let our kids figure out, that, you know, and, they, and, we, and parents, we wrongly leave our kids to sort of fend for themselves against Pharaoh and against the world, Egypt, and, and the world views out there. And a lot of times parents assume, oh, my kids won't think that way. My kids won't be sucked into, you know, the, the crazy, uh, you know, worldview that, that so many have today. But sadly, we, we wonder as we send our kids off to college, we're actually leaving them in the world to their own devices and they come back, hey, why is Junior now totally in opposite in everything that I believe and think? We shouldn't be shocked. Pharaoh tried to do that with Moses. Leave your kids behind. And Moses said, no, I'm not gonna do that either. The final compromise, by the way, was in um, chapter 10, verse 24 of Exodus, where Pharaoh says, okay, Moses, go and serve the Lord. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind, um, and then your little ones can also go with you. The final compromise was, okay, you guys can all leave, but leave your flocks and herds. Um, like, this is his last compromise. Why would he want to have them leave the flocks and herds so that they'll die in the wilderness? Um, but you say, Brett, well, they weren't... Um, they weren't eating their flocks and herds, they were having manna. Well, nobody knew that at the time, uh, that manna was gonna fall from heaven. But there's even a, a greater thing I think that might be here. What did they use their flocks and herds for? One of the biggest things was for worship. They would worship God in the tabernacle, sacrificing lambs, bulls, rams, goats, as offerings to the Lord. And it's almost like you can superimpose on this story. You know, Pharaoh says, you can go, but I, we don't want you worshiping God in the way you wanna worship God. Keep your flocks and herds behind. Go and worship your Lord, but leave your flocks and herds. And that's the next thing Satan will have you do. He doesn't want you to be one. Uh, don't worry about worship. Don't worry about giving and giving of your flocks and herds. Leave that with us. The reason I go into this Exodus passage is, is it's so much like Daniel, how they, the Babylonians wanted to sort of you know, compromise and, and get these good Jewish boys to be more Babylonian. It's the same thing Satan has done 
from the very beginning. Get us to compromise just a little bit and then we end up way off course. Um, that was the objective. And so how does that work out? He's gonna give them new names. He's feeding them with the sumptuous meat and wine and they're whining and dining, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But verse eight, as we read on Sunday, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Man, there's so much here. Um, you know, we looked at on Sunday, uh, Daniel was a man of purpose, one of seven Daniel characteristics that we identified on Sunday that are just make me love, I love Daniel for so many reasons, but that, that's one of them. He was a man of purpose, a young man of purpose. Don't you love that? And man, if we could instill that in our kids early to be you know, young people of purpose so that when they're you know, you know, being lured or tempted, they know to just say never. Not just say no, say never. Have it purposed already in their heart. We looked at that on Sunday. But notice here, does Daniel get fired up and yell and scream at the prince of the eunuchs? Um, does he get a sign and protest? Um, I think it's interesting that he does something here that's kind of cool. He's, he does this in sort of a classy, thinking, sort of cerebral kind of way. Uh, let's watch how he does this. So just the way he approaches, he, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Um, we don't see him getting all fired up or crazy, but we see him being reasonable. And I, I feel like we need more of Daniel's sort of approach. There's a lot of crazy talk today. People are all wild-eyed and crazy about this and that. I love it when people remain calm, but still have an amazing argument and are making a good point. Uh, Daniel's the guy who knows how to do that. Check it out, verse, um, verse nine, it says, now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. So there's a couple things about this. Um, uh, the, the LGBT community and, the, and the, the churches that love to celebrate the gay and lesbian agenda, they will point out this verse as Daniel was gay. Uh, you'll hear that, I'm not joking. Um, but that's not an honest read of this text. In the original text, it's the idea of the love, the word love there is the brotherly love, not a erotic love, not a sensual love. It's a, a love uh, like, a, like um, God brings favor uh, with Daniel, with both Nebuchadnezzar, but also with the guy that's in charge of all these eunuchs. Um, and, um, and, and by the way, this is an interesting thing. The question is, was Daniel a eunuch? You say, well, Brett, who cares? What's a eunuch? Um, look it up. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's kids in the room. I don't know if I should tell you what a eunuch is. Let's just say, uh, you, you know, um, the, the transgender community is kind of like, yeah, this is Daniel. Um, because, you know, he was made a eunuch by the prince of the eunuchs. Um, but that sort of removes the homosexual agenda that they had. I'm just saying. Uh, it's, a, it's a crazy argument once you get into all this stuff. Was Daniel a eunuch? I don't know for sure. We know that he was put under the prince of the eunuchs and oftentimes the, the Babylonians would make eunuchs out of their captive people um, to sort of be a sign and also a statement of who's in control. Um, and, uh, and so all that to say, this, don't make more of this verse. Some people try to make crazy stuff out of this verse. Daniel just gets favor by God. God makes it so this guy in charge of all the eunuchs, in charge of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, 
he really, they, they love each other, like, like uh, brothers, if, if you would. Um, God does that. Well, verse 10, it says, and the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. Question, was Nebuchadnezzar a dangerous king? Man, if you know the Bible, he was really dangerous. Like he was the kind of king. Now, um, by the way, he had all power. The Nebuchadnezzar you know, was, was this government where you know, basically whatever the king says goes. We're gonna go into the governments of the Babylonians, Medes and the Persians, the Greeks. We're gonna go into that coming up, I think in the next chapter. But all that to say, you know, he could say off with your head, the end. It was that kind of a king. And if you recall, even um, in Jeremiah 29, 22, we read where Nebuchadnezzar barbecued people, like literally put them on a grill and sizzled them, flipped them over, sizzled them, and eventually they died. Like he loved seeing people in pain. He throws people in fiery furnaces. Um, he, he chops people up into pieces. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is good at. He likes to kill people and see them in pain. So the prince of the eunuchs is like, uh, Daniel, Man, you refusing to eat the king's meat puts me, the one you're, I'm your good friend and you're putting me in danger. Um, so so what, what is the solution? And again, does Daniel just say tough bananas, Babylonian? Um, you know, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Uh, is that what he does? No. I love his kindness here and, and the way he tries to work it out carefully. It says in verse 11, then Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, 10 days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee and the countenance of the children that eat the portion of the meat king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he considered uh, pardon me, consented to them in this matter and proved them 10 days or tested them 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of the king's meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. So before Nebuchadnezzar can figure out what's going on here, they give them a 10-day trial kind of within themselves saying, okay, we'll give you 10 days. But if you're looking weaker, we're going straight back to the ribeyes. Um, this is what I think is one of the greatest miracles of the Bible right here. <laughs> Guys were eating vegetables for 10 days and they looked healthy after that. That's a miracle. Like parting the Red Sea, eating vegetables and looking fat and stuff. Beautiful miracle. Of the Bible. Now, some of you are like, see, Brett, vegetarian and veganism is biblical. Well, as it turns out, um, uh, it, it's, what is this pulse that's talked about? It's probably vegetables that Daniel eats in water, veggies and water. Um, some make an argument that the word pulse in the Hebrew means more of a grain, like grains and seeds and stuff like that. Um, interesting debate. You can look, all you uh, nutritionist people can look it up. But in 10 days, there was a big difference. And, and, and um, so uh, here's the thing. I've, I've seen people make an argument that you know, Christians should be vegetarians because of the book of Daniel. Um, why do we not believe that? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus was not a vegetarian. Jesus ate fish. Um, and also, Paul the Apostle, 
I love what he says, you know, when he told Timothy, and by the way, one of the last days marks of the end times, this cracks me up because this seems very apocalyptic to me, they'll forbid people eating meat. I mean, have you seen it? We did a prophecy update on, you know, AOC saying that, you know, cow flatulence are the cause of this, the global warming. Um, so they're trying to put these backpacks on cows that collect the methane gas from the flatulence of the cows. I showed you pictures of their backpacks that they're wearing and as the cows flatulate, uh, they collect the methane and they're gonna use it as a uh, renewable resource energy. Um, but, but we gotta stop eating meat because it's destroying the, like, it's like this whole thing is a little crazy. But listen to what the Bible says. Paul tells Timothy, he says, in the last days, there'll be seducing spirits speaking doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared. Listen, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Here we're given the license to have a meat and, and be eating it with thanksgiving, and I do. Um, now, now, if you want to be a vegetarian or a vegan, and that's just because you want to do that for health reasons or whatever, good for you. Um, that's great, but don't make it a biblical issue. That, that's, a, that's a real impossible thing to do is make a Bible case out of not eating meat. Uh, I've seen it uh, all throughout my years of being a Christian. There's people, groups that come and go and try to make the argument. Um, and one of their arguments is, see, Daniel ate vegetables and he was healthier after 10 days. Um, I had a buddy uh, that grew up with me in the church when I was a kid, and his whole family were vegetarians except for him. Um, it was really kind of a funny thing. Uh, and they were a great family, but I just gotta say it, the whole family were these poor little withered people. Um, they just looked like little, like, they all looked like they just needed a steak really bad. <laughs> except for their son who was not the, he was this ripped, huge guy, and, and he ended up being like this really, uh, you know, great athlete and all this. All, meanwhile, all the other kids were just these little shriveled up little, it was like, I felt so bad for them. I'm like, come on, just have a steak, you know. Now I gotta admit, uh, some of my friends I've, I know that are big muscular people are veg vegetarians now and they, they tell me, well, look at a horse. A horse is a vegetarian and it still has lots of muscle and uh, is very athletic, if you would. Uh, and they make, there's people making that argument now. You can make the medical arguments, you can make health arguments if you want to, uh, that's great but do not make it into a spiritual argument. That, I think you're on really shaky ground. Uh, I know you're on shaky ground. If you're just using Daniel 1, why are you spending so much time? Don't mess with me on food. Um, by the Bible, I know the Bible and food. Uh, I, can, I can, that's probably my best apologetic right there. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so you know, the, the, they go 10 days and, and the, the, the one Melzar, who's, who's the helper, helper of the prince of the eunuchs, he says, man, you guys are better in 10 days. So then they go for a longer period and eventually what happens, well, verse 17, as for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said that he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king communed with them and, um, and among them all he found was none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. 
And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians, the astrologers, and all that were in his realm. And Daniel continued even to the first year of King Cyrus. Wow, I love this, how the Lord just gave Daniel favor because he was a man of purpose and he didn't just get sucked into Babylon, but he was careful. Um, you know, he's careful to do what we've been talking about these last few, few Sundays, to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now you might say, Brett, well, where did Daniel get the harebrained idea to be into vegetables? Well, see, that's just it. I gotta make this point before we wrap it up. Daniel was being a good Jewish boy. He was being a good kosher Jewish boy. Um, you can make a biblical case for what Daniel was doing because he was a Jew. And they were wanting to feed Daniel the meat of the king of Babylon that included a bunch of unkosher meats, meats that did not fit the Jewish law. Well, Brett, shouldn't we have to keep the Jewish law too? Man, if you didn't get that memo, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, the law of the Old Testament was not for you and me uh, to, to have to keep it. But the law of the Old Testament, the Jews, was to drive us, like Paul says, as a schoolmaster to Jesus Christ. And if you're interested, go through the book of Galatians, a short little book. We went through Galatians and we talked very much about how um, we're no longer under the law. The law kills. Nobody ever was saved by keeping the law. But the Jews, especially these Jews of the Old Testament time, they were supposed to be keeping the law of God and the law of Moses. So Daniel was in fact being biblically sound in what he was doing. Um, but you still can't make that argument that we should be doing what Daniel did with vegetables. But Daniel was being an obedient Jewish boy, just like his mama taught him. I think, I'm pretty sure Daniel and the boys got their uh, biblical training from their parents. Um, their parents raised them um, rightly. Oh, how we need parents that will do that. I'm reminded of, um, you know, um, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, let me just read it to you. And we'll finish with this tonight. In, in Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, verses three through seven. Let me just read this to you. Listen, this is, this is what the Lord says to the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy six, three, it says, hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and you may increase mightily as the Lord thy God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that flows with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. And listen, thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children. When they shall t uh, talk of them, talk of all these things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, talk about this when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up and you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be frontlands between your eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. The Jews took this literally. They, you know, they have the phylacteries and they write these, you know, these uh, descriptions on their you know, mezuzahs on the doors, and they, they literally do all this stuff. But the idea is not as much about a paper in a box on your forehead. It's more about having it in your heart and your mind. And, and the way God's prescription for the Jews to make sure their kids were getting it was to remind them of these truths. Repetition is the mother of all learning. I have a hunch Daniel's mother and father was, were constantly saying, here's what the scriptures say, Daniel. Don't forget, 
Be a man of purpose. Serve the Lord, only the Lord. Don't serve any other gods. You know, love the Lord thy God with all their height, their heart, your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like these are the kinds of things Daniel's parents, no doubt, would rehearse. And when? When you rise up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, when you're walking, when you're sitting, like whenever you go, be rehearsing with the kids the truth of the scripture. And I think that's how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah, I think that's how they uh, were able to get into Babylon and not be duped, not to be sucked in. Mom and dad, we gotta work overtime today. We're living in Babylon today. They want your kids, they want our families, they want your marriages, they wanna suck you into this worldview that is so, so not working and it's so obvious that it's not working. And so we need to be uh, game on. When, when you guys rise up in the morning, are you, are you getting together and praying with your kids and reminding them? You don't have to do a 30 minute devotional, but just rehearse something short and important to your kids every day. You know, maybe it's a little verse, you know, uh, that you can remind your kids. Kids, the Bible says, think of something really short. Pray without ceasing. There's a short scripture for you. First Thessalonians chapter five says, pray without ceasing. Johnny, today, try to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? When you're walking around school, pray for the kids on the playground. Pray for your teacher. Pray, pray for yourself to walk with the Lord and not be easily you know, drawn to sinful things. But remember, Johnny, pray without ceasing. And then when they come home, hey, uh, blessed is the, the man who endures temptation. When he's tried, he will receive the crown of life, which promised those love. How, how are you doing with temptation, Johnny? Uh, were you tempted by stuff today? Well, remember, here's what the Bible says. And, and just rehearsing stuff constantly. And you, you, can't, you gotta be a little creative, mom and dad, because you can drive your kids nuts uh, if you just kind of the same thing over and over and over again. Um, but but you, be creative in how you're you know, reminding. And if you're not in the word, mom and dad, you, you can't expect your kids to understand the word or care about the word. It's, you, it's gotta come from a real relationship that you have with the Lord, that where you're on fire, and then that overflow of what you have, let that just flow to your kids. Man, we need to, to get back to just really reminding our kids of truth so that when they see this crazy world's philosophies and stuff, your kids will just spot it a mile away and say, yeah, that's not true. They won't be duped. They won't be sucked in. That's what Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah really stand for for me, is these young boys that somewhere along the way, they got trained probably in this Deuteronomy chapter six fashion where their parents just rehearsed in their minds and they already had it. They were locked in. May that be true of our families. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lord, as we pack it up tonight, we take this first chapter of Daniel. We're reminded these are the most amazing characters from the Bible days. But Lord, how we, we recognize that these young men were put in a situation very much like the situation our own kids find themselves in. Um, schools, neighborhoods, a worldview, um, even our government and so many things that just kind of fly in the face of things that are true. Um, and we, we wonder, what are we supposed to do and, and how are we supposed to act? But Lord, may we learn from the book of Daniel. Um, I pray that like Daniel, we wouldn't just be a, 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 just unnecessarily um, weird or offensive, but we love how Daniel, Lord, just kind of was careful and methodical and logical, and he kind of worked through very difficult things. Lord, we already see that in chapter one here. Give us that kind of wisdom, Lord, that we know how to, to stand for what is right and true, but also doing it in a way that's honoring to you and your name. 
Give us wisdom, Lord, and I pray that this would bring good fruit in our lives. We thank you for uh, the study that we get to do through the book of Daniel. Bless these people who've taken this time tonight to, to study this chapter in Jesus' name, amen.